We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. People in coffee have a sense that we're on an escalator, always continuing to evolve, to innovate, to push the industry forward. But I actually think we're on a pendulum. And, and you know, fashions, tastes, and coffee swing back and forth. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. As the founder of Blue Bottle Coffee, James Freeman has seen the rise of specialty coffee from a very unique vantage point. Freeman joins us in the studio to talk about his company's influence, as well as where coffee is heading today. We find out about his Dream Cafe project in Japan and what excites him most about making coffee at home. We also talk about James' excellent book, The Blue Bottle Craft of Coffee. This is a seriously interesting talk with one of the great characters in the world of food and drink. I hope you enjoy it. James Freeman, welcome to This Is Taste. Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm really excited to see you. I interviewed you about maybe 10 years ago, 14 years ago. I don't know. Time is different. X number of years ago. Um, There's only pre-COVID and post-COVID. I agree. And, and it was when you were releasing your book with 10 Speed. And I, I just I love that book so much. It, it really was a pioneering book that merged recipes with coffee intelligence with like essay writing. Yeah, I it was fun. I I, I love the collaborators. Caitlin did the food yeah. section, and all her head notes are so fun and smart. And then the she as is her way, she's very rigorous about taste testing. So they 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 are easy to make. They're very yeah. they're very good to make. Um, Clay, the photographer, he really did a lot with structure yeah. of the book. He was the one that came up with like grow, roast, drink, eat, and then there was Tara Duggan. Yeah. Such a good journalist. Definitely. And she did a lot of the grow, like just the expository writing about um, coffee origins. And then it was a good eye, a, 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 a careful eye on on my ebullience in terms of, <laughs> of writing. And then, you mean your wordiness? <laughs> guilty. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, yeah, and then I just sort of had fun writing about well, like these subjective feelings about coffee like what does it feel like to roast coffee it's like it's your book and then god in a cup or god in the cup i feel like both of those books really informed me as a coffee drinker and they were just mm. really pioneering books that's nice to hear <laughs> now james i wanted to have you in i have so many questions um coffee's a real micro theme here and we love talking to all sorts of folks you just got back from japan about I a month did. ago i did what was i came back i always get round trip tickets you know, I mean, why? Damn, What's, I know. So tell me a little bit about uh, what you're doing there. And I know our mutual friend Kira Kudo said I should ask you about Kyoto and what you were doing in Kyoto and what <sighs> the heck you were roasting and brewing. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Akira. Um, Great guy. Shout out to Kira. Exactly. Exactly. He says what I think. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's kind of thrilling to hang out with him. Um, yes, Kyoto. So to step back, um, I have been only kind of tangentially involved with Blue Bottle Coffee since the Nestle transaction, you know, going from sort of uh, influence without authority now to kind of like leaning into the power of my own insignificance, <laughs> um, which has been oddly freeing. So 
what happened is before COVID, I was in Japan and uh, Korea, and I had just been to the Starbucks Reserve Roastery in Nakameguro. You know, twenty thousand square feet, yeah. beautiful, got untold millions, billions of yen, um, and and that's the pinnacle experience of Starbucks, right? And it, it's big, it's glamorous, it's 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 gaudy, it's got a pizzeria, it's got cocktail bars, you, you know, mm-hmm. that's a pinnacle experience. So on the the way back home on that long flight, I, I was just sort of interrogating that concept within myself. It's like, what is the pinnacle experience? What, what might the pinnacle experience for a blue bottle coffee be? What would I say that the pinnacle experience ought to be? Because back in the day when I opened cafes, like they were very, very thoughtful and autobiographical. Yeah. And, and I... I chose those to be the pinnacle. Cafes experience. in San Francisco, in yeah. New York City. Yeah, anywhere. Yeah. Um, you know, but but that that phase was over. And and so like, okay, well, Howard needs 20,000 square feet in pizzeria for his pinnacle experience. I really need 400 square feet in a record player <laughs> for my pinnacle experience. I want a, like small room, modest, beautiful. And I want all focus to be on... The coffees, the extraction of the coffees, every little moment, every little spoon. Let me jump in and ask you. Espresso machine, are we doing a drip setup? Are we doing siphon? What's Uh, the setup? Well, the the thing in Tokyo is basically none of the above. None of the above. Uh, So I I came back and I was like filled with enthusiasm for this idea, (laughs) blithely (laughs) thinking that this enthusiasm would translate into action within the company. And it translated into meetings is what it translated into. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, and then COVID. So I, ha- I have a certain amount of compassion for for the people running the company quite well through COVID. That's not easy. Yeah. Nobody was laid off. That was admirable. Oh, cool. So it, maybe it was going to be a cafe, a, a permanent cafe in Los Angeles. Maybe not. So design, design, meeting, meeting. Nothing happened. And then, then this idea, then it kind of sunk uh, – you know, and I was a little bit sad about that because, mm-hmm. like, I was, I wanted what I wanted. Like, that was my story of Blue Bottle. Yeah, you I just, had the record player picked out. Yeah. <laughs> you had the records picked out, probably. Yes, yes. Are we talking, like, post-punk? Uh, no, Matt. You're a clarinet player by trade, so is it classical? No, I, I mean, a, a little bit. I, I wanted, I was, you know, very inspired by Daibo's Cafe and Daibo's book. Do you ever read? No. Um the Daibo Coffee Manual, There, there's a beautiful letterpress. It's like 35 pages long. My favorite book on coffee, Nahoko Press. I think he's out of print, but maybe not. And he talks about the records he liked. He liked, um, you know, Bill Evans a lot. He liked um, Keith Jarrett, the Cone Concert, which was surprising to me, a little bit hippie for Mr. That's Daibo. amazing. There's a great shop in Seoul that had Keith Jarrett on all the time. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. It's a good Keith Jarrett yeah, definitely fits with coffee. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, 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 no. It's fun to talk about records. Yeah. So so yeah, I what I learned long ago was I cannot be responsible for a hundred percent of the playlist. So the idea was like collaborate and, mm-hmm. and it, it actually to speed up the narrative, the very second day I was in Tokyo, I went with a few colleagues, dear colleagues at Blue Bottle and we went record shopping mm-hmm. for this thing. So it was my my input and my friends. So you're saying this thing, and this thing is potentially this 400-square-foot box coffee shop in Kyoto that you're working on opening? Yeah, No, it opened. It is like it, it opened. It's open. What's I, it called? Well, it used to, it used to be open. It's, it's temporary. Everything's yeah. temporary. Yeah. Um, 
You know, every cafe is a pop-up, right? This lasted for about six weeks. Oh, so okay, and you were you were at the bar and pulling pulling shots. No, and- no, no. Um, so it's in the first Blue Bottle Kyoto Cafe in near Nanzanji Temple. It's this perfect room upstairs that that seats four people, and there's a table. Uh, Joe Nagasaka designed it, but it's in a hundred year old machia. There's a table, some Bertoya chairs. Uh, and and there's a little bit of in- infrastructure right outside the room. And so what my colleague Benjamin Brewer and I, over the years of COVID and after, came up with these ways of making coffee that I don't think have been made. I, I don't want to sound grandiose, but but it was very unusual ways of making coffee. I love this. Please say more. Okay. Because there isn't <laughs> okay. a lot of innovation on the drink side. I mean – that's unfair. Let me strike that because there is a lot of innovation, but we don't really as consumers see it everywhere because it's so specialized. Right, right. I wouldn't call this innovation. I would I would call this simplification. Okay, great call. That that's what I would call. It. So, we ended up with these the, these courses, four four or five courses and a couple little sweet bites to eat in in between a couple of the courses. And the first course was just this little refreshing sort of cascara yuzu little soda. Wonderful. It's beautiful. My mouth is (laughs) smacking thinking about (laughs) that. And then we had a a tasting course of three coffees to taste um, that you could taste at the same time. And it was super fun coming up with these coffees. One was a very famous farm in Panama, Finca Debra. Yeah. Gesha, a a very beautiful gesha from them. One was a kima lot from Yemen, the, the very first place coffee was was produced as agriculture. I mean, obviously it, it arose naturally in Ethiopia, but it was agriculture in Yemen. And then the other was a, a coffee from Fringe in Goleta in California. So we had basically a 500-year-old mm-hmm. growing region and a 20-year-old. Yeah growing region. And pe- people that this lot from Fringe, F-R-I-N-J, was a nine pound lot. It was an extraordinary James lot. Hoffman and I talked about that that lot when, on his episode and I'll link to the show notes with James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, oh, it, wonderful to hear about California grown coffees. I mean, holy yeah. cow. And and Jay Rusky is doing great work. The The coffee is beautifully detailed. There's the, a wide range of, of like, you know, California is expensive, so California yeah. coffee is going to be expensive, but it goes from expensive to, to sort of eye-watering based on, you know, the lots and... The, and so, James, they're... let me ask you, just in U.S. dollars, what is the cost of uh, of this tasting, these flights? And, and I ask because, you know, I tell me first, what, what are we... What I think, are... you know, like that sort of the freedom of being a line item in a marketing budget means I don't have to care. Yeah, totally. But I think it's around 75 bucks. Oh my gosh. It, it's just remarkable. And this is, we'll talk about the value of coffee. To get truly the most exceptional coffees in the world, and this is something I've talked about on the show, for only, for $75. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, of anything, is incredible. Right. To get a $75 bottle of wine at a kind of a mediocre Italian restaurant in Manhattan means it's kind of sad. Yeah. And you're getting this exceptional from three distinct growing regions roasted in, and were they all done um, drip, hand hand brewed? Yes and no. Uh, So Benjamin... Brewer had this idea of separating the extraction from the filtration. What a name, by the way. Just gotta say, <laughs> exactly. guy in coffee with the name Brewer. I know, I know. And his initials are BB. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, he had this idea. So and and also it worked as theater too. So we we had two. Imagine three 
very thin, elegant glass cylinders with about 250 milliliters of water in them, hot water. And then we just dusted about 8 or 10 grams of these extraordinary coffees on top very gently. And then you got this snow globe going that you mm-hmm. could just watch, you know, listen to Bill Evans or whoever, Miles Day. No, Miles came later. Bill Evans, or, or there was a Ryuchi Sakamoto record mm-hmm. that one of the team picked that was beautiful with this chorus, just like the, it, it, it really underscored sonically what, what you were seeing. And so it, that was also, that extraction was very flexible, two to four minutes, mm-hmm. just let it snow globe down and then filter it. Benjamin had his favorite filter paper just in a Hario dripper just because it yeah. fit. Like a standard V60. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the the dripper geography didn't matter. It was more about the paper. So let's talk about paper. Mm-hmm. I know, sorry, listener, we'll get this be short. Filter <laughs> paper is super interesting. How do yeah. you have a how do you have a favorite filter paper? Oh, because, you know, you just have to be deep, deep nerd. But but also it, it's like it's not subtle when you taste the difference. Oh, I agree. It's not subtle. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah. Trust me. So you can suck on paper towels. You can lick cardboard or you can have something yeah. really beautiful that, that and refreshing. Clean, that you don't yeah. taste that paper pulp. Backing up. You started roasting coffees at a farmer's market while you were working as a professional clarinet player in San Francisco. I, actually, I stopped clarinet okay. playing and, and then started. And then, so there was no yeah. overlap. But you essentially were selling coffees at a farmer's market. I'd like to get, for our listeners, a little sense of, of that time when you were <laughs> selling it out of, out of these markets. And the second part, quickly, is when you exited the company and you you've just illustrated how you're still involved but on a kind of peripheral level what how was the feeling when you when you sold your company to Nestle oh geez okay let's take the first question first yeah. and then I'll take the second question yeah. second and then I'll go like lie down for a I know minutes. I know this is therapeutic <laughs> but I just have always wondered because I think I met you last before you sold so let's go. right that was a long time ago a long time ago um yeah coffee the farmer's market it was a in retrospect, it was a great time to start with coffee, and it was great for a, a lot of reasons because it was, bef- you know, people would tell me, like, uh, why are you starting a coffee company? It's so saturated, and what they meant was, first of all, I loved that metaphor, saturated, as it applied to coffee. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, because there's Pete's and Starbucks, and obviously nobody will make things that that are any different from or better than those two companies. It still still is a mentality today, by the way. Oh, that's interesting. For many yeah. of the public, I'm but anyways, so blissfully unaware of exactly. like the general mentality of the public, it's it's kind of nice um, to be sheltered in the yeah. citrus orchards of Ojai, California. <laughs> yeah. So, but I just want like always for me, I wanted to make what I wanted to drink and see. I wanted to make a cafe that I wanted to go to, so I would make that cafe, and then people would come, and that that was great. I wanted to drink coffee that I wasn't seeing or I wasn't drinking. And so that's why I, I chose the roast profiles that I roasted because of, of I just I just wanted that thing. You wanted to taste the coffee. You wanted roast profiles that actually illustrated the agriculture and not over roasting into a quote unquote dark or quote unquote French roast. Yeah. I mean, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, this this I think what you say is what a lot of coffee professionals also say and think and believe that they and only they have some privileged insight into what a coffee actually is. 
It's like, um, I love it. Way to sm- slap, smack me down. I love that <laughs> shit, James. You did that in such a nice way. But oh, thank I, you. I love it. I appreciate uh, no snobbery zone here. So let's. let's oh, yeah. No, no. And, and I'm not calling you a snob no. I, because I think this is an interesting and important point is like we have a subjective insight into what we think coffee should be. Just like somebody roasting at Pete's has a subjective insight into what he or she thinks coffee should be. Right. And whose subjective insight is more valuable, whose is more interesting, that's not for me to say. I know which one I prefer. Yeah. I know which one I'd rather drink. I had an amazing Gesha at La Cabra, an espresso just now, which could mean after my Hayes Valley espresso, why I'm talking so very fast. <laughs> yeah, I think we there's a way it. to slow down <laughs> the speed on your on your, on Spotify or something. As like an that. aside, before uh, that we re- started recording, I walked over to the the 55th and Sixth Avenue location, which is right by our office, and I go there maybe once or twice a month. I, I like it. it's in mm. my rotation, and I see you on the street. <laughs> and we just like see each other randomly, and then you're you were heading there as well. You yeah. had never been to that location. No, no, no. It's just amazing. Like I walk in, I literally think about you every time I walk in. Oh, and then, that's sweet. Well, because you're the brand and I love the uh-huh. brand and I'm a big fan of Blue Bottle. But then we went there and you had a Hayes Valley. Right. Just yeah. A- that's what I do when I go to a Blue Bottle shop, have a Hayes Valley espresso. That's fun. It's like talk about Proustie and like this taste memory, right? Yeah. It's deep. So you're at the farmer's market. You're roasting at a profile that you liked. Um, yeah, that and- intended to be lighter than the surrounding, you know, the, the, the semi-sphere of coffee roasted at that time. Yeah. And because I just liked what I liked. I, I liked um, these tastes that, that I thought were very interesting. I had been a hobby roaster before. And a lot of time, you, you know, what brought me to the farmer's market was this insight like, whoa, coffee is fresh food. At yeah. the time I was roasting, I've said this story a lot, but there's literally no place I could go in the Bay Area where I could get a coffee, a coffee beans that I knew when they were roasted. Nowhere. The, the, the date stamp. It's remarkable to think about a time like that. but And it wasn't that long ago. No, we're not talking 20 about... 20 years. Yeah. A lot has changed. It's a, a lot brand new changed. industry. Yeah. We have to remind everyone, this is such a brand new industry when you think about all of food culture in the, in the world. This is mm. a very young industry and you're roasting with a lighter roast and you're opening a cafe that is probably doing some little things a little differently than other cafes. <laughs> so, so what, what do you describe those early cafes? Oh, yeah. I mean, just at the farmer's market, it was crazy. It was nuts. Like, I'm going to prepare every coffee to order. Yeah. You know, I didn't invent that. You know, Monmouth Coffee and yeah. this came up with the 70s and even before. And in, in Intelligentsia was hand brewing, I'm the, sure, in Chicago in 97. Probably. Yeah, probably. Um they, you know, Japan in the 70s, the, the whole notion that this third wave, I, I feel like, is such a uh, misguided attempt to to privilege our particular moment in coffee above all others that I, I don't particularly agree with that, that term. But, yes, I was going to be the crazy guy at the farmer's market with big kettles of boiling water making coffee to order one at a time. I was going to pull shots to order, and mm-hmm. I had, like— little bits, little steam pitchers. And if it was a macchiato, I would steam milk to order in a little pitcher and latte in a bigger pitcher at that time in San Francisco. if you, <laughs> I would call it like the sourdough bread starter approach to making steaming milk because they ha- would have these giant milk steamers. And then they'd keep adding yeah. milk on top. And it's like, it's like Solora method for wine. Right. When did the first milk hit the bottom of that pitcher? And then just like the sound, the sonic environment, the scream mm-hmm. of this 
re-steamed milk being steamed to like 500 degrees, you know, that, that was a very unpleasant sonic environment to be in too. So we tended to steam milk at a lower temperature so it would be maximally sweet, pulled shots to order, very slow, you know, a, a lot of coffee in the portafilter, um, slow extraction to develop this this sweetness, which is kind of, you know, thought of as being old-fashioned now. A little bit, but when you talk about sweetness, and this is a reminder, you know, sweetness isn't necessarily the addition of sugar or sucrose. It's actually no. flavor profile in coffee that I consider just interesting. It's when mm. coffee deviates from the burned or blah to, like, something else, and that's mm. what sweetness is to me. Yeah, there's actually very little sugar yeah. in roasted coffee. Exactly. So this word that people use, that coffee professionals use, sweetness, I think it's a should be used more specifically among coffee-educated people who've done a lot of cuffing because when I I think it's a, a misguided to use the word sweetness when you're talking to the general public because it is, in fact, not sweet. you got to have a little fruit. That's acidity. why I had to clarify because yeah, I think no, I'm it, glad it's you confusing. Did. Yeah. I'm glad you did. Yeah, and and so, like, there's some fruit acidity. There, there are other things going on. But especially when you're you're making coffee espresso that's supposed to have steamed milk on top, then all those fruit acids I don't think go particularly well with steamed milk, which is why I still like a, a sort of a more developed yeah. roast level in an espresso and a, a shorter, thicker shot. Because like, what tastes better with milk? Like like Maillard reaction kind of tastes or cranberry juice. I choose Maillard. Mal- Can we talk yeah. about espresso for a second? Let. Because I've, I've asked uh, many about espresso, and, and Jeff Watts comes to mind, uh, mm-hmm. one of the founders of Intelligentsia, and we definitely went long <laughs> about talking a, a joke about Jeff, um, about why he hates espresso, essentially, <laughs> and how it, it kind of with pressure and the way it's roasted, it kind of like the farming element and the flavor profile gets like leaves the coffee. Do you do, oh. agree or disagree with this? Oh, I agree with the kind of the moralizing stance. I agree with this objectification of of espresso as a thing that should be a certain way or should not be a certain way. You know, I I think it's what was it like 10 or so years ago a very interesting thing happened and it I mean to step back. People in coffee have a have a sense that we're on an escalator always continuing to evolve, to innovate, to push the industry forward. But I actually think we're on a pendulum. And, and you know, fashions, tastes, and coffee swing back and forth. I swing love that. Back and forth. I so agree. Media is the yeah. same way, by the way. Media is, we, we're not an escalator, we're a pendulum that's yeah. inside. Yeah, yeah. And so many, many things that people are thinking now about coffee have been thought before 20 years, 100 years, you know, X number of years ago. So... An interesting thing happened in coffee and espresso, and it was sort of inevitable because if you remember drinking, like, gimme coffee in New York in, what year was that, 2007 or 8, it was like the triple basket, you know, filled with coffee, super, super dense shot, and... I kind of like that. I still kind of like that I mean, that shout to Gimme, wonderful, wonderful company. I, yeah, I'm a yeah. huge fan. Yeah, as as am I. They were one of the few people in New York in those those years that really knew yeah. how to make coffee. Yeah. And I, I like that taste. I still like that taste. It doesn't taste like any particular growing region. And that's, yeah. You know, and it doesn't taste like any particular agriculture. It, the question to ask then, is that right or wrong? And 
I don't see that as a right or wrong question. If what you're looking for is particular insight into the agriculture or the varietal of the coffee, then of course, espresso should not be the thing you order at a cafe. And I think the foundational element of coffee buying and paying fairly and having terroir and giving mm. the farmers as much credit as the barista, I think the tendency is to say, yes, we need to have that that flavor profile that is from a region and recognize it. And espresso is smashing that model. That's kind of the argument against, you know, espresso. It, yeah, that's true. And and that's, that's a legitimate argument. But then you have to look, look at what you're selling in your cafe. You are selling 80%, 90% of the drinks you're selling are drinks that people are putting steamed milk on top of. Yeah. And hence, you're unable to taste the agriculture anyway. So you might as well give them something that pairs beautifully with milk. Griefoli, and we all love a cortado. We love lattes yes. and oat drinks. And mm. there's it's wonderful, especially at certain times of day. Some people like having a morning latte or cappuccino with mm. with milk. Um, I, I kind of like, you know, draw a parallel between, you know, the where we're at right now with coffee and like cocktail culture in like the early 2000s, mid 2000s when mm. – 80% of people were ordering vodka sodas and Bud Lights, <laughs> you know, and but then there was like the Manhattan and Negroni. Right. And look where we are now with cocktails. I'm hoping, my hope is that in 20 years, coffee will ultimately be more brew drip, hand brewed than espresso. But that's just... I, I would like to believe that's true. However, I, I mean, if you look at what, how people are building cafes now in the U.S., uh, obviously there's, there's, constraints around construction and budget and things you can't do in the U.S. because it's hard or expensive. But I, I, I do think there's so much emphasis now on batch brewing, even in the, the specialty shops, that how can you make an argument that coffee is special and in, like incredibly rarefied if you're saying like, oh, cool, 20 seconds, here you go. I don't know when, you, you know, this has been sitting for 20 minutes in this pot that is not beautiful. It's true. I mean, that's why hand brewing, what Nigel's doing at Drip is so interesting. And Exactly. If, but the, in taking that four to seven minutes to get a coffee, obviously that does not work for a lot of people in their daily routines when they want coffee at a cafe. Does it? I mean, that, please, that's please the question. Back. Like, yes, who, anybody, especially in New York, you go walk into a room and it's like, who here is not very busy? Right. Nobody raises their hand. Right. But who here has some sort of agency over their schedule? Who here has some sort of choice in the matter of when they wake up and what they do? A lot of people have that kind of agency. So it's really about the prioritization of that time. Some people would prefer not to wait in line for a coffee that takes a long time to make. I understand that. Uh, but if you design the store in a certain way, if you make the performance practice of making coffee underscore the rarity and the privilege that we all have of paying five dollars for something extraordinary then maybe people will prioritize their time in a little bit different way however if you build a shop that just looks like any other shop and you have a brewer that looks like any other brewer and you want them people to think it's it's a privilege to have a coffee that's way too hot that takes 20 seconds to make <laughs> And then you're going to end up, if you're careful, you're going to have a timer on it. And then you're going to end up dumping that brewer out half of the time after 20 minutes. Like, isn't that a sight to behold? Yeah. Somebody 
dumping really precious rare coffee into a sink. Yeah, into the drain. You know? James, I love that. I want to leave it there because I think we could go all day about Yeah, file that under don't get me started. No, no, <laughs> it's it's so really cool to hear that thought, your thoughts on that because um, it's definitely something I I'll think about. I'll rattle my walker about the, that all day long. <laughs> the next long. 20 years is going to be interesting. Got to ask you um, about coffee at home. Mm. Um, how do you make it? How do, how do I make it? Yeah, what's your preferred method? Oh, man. Um, I do like a little cappuccino to start the day. I'll make that from, from time to time, what's morning the gear? to morning. What's the gear? Oh, oh, oh. Matthew. Um, there's a lot of gear <laughs> in my life. I've got um, my go-to is a Linea Mini. <laughs> um, which is very nice. Oh, I know, love that. that. I, I, I love that machine. A while ago. I, I look at that in like catalogs in like one day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. One day. One day. As a New Yorker, your counter space is limited too. So. Yeah, true. So there's that. And I like thinking about the past in terms of coffee, the history of coffee. I, I'm much more interested in the past than the future um, or I spend more time thinking about it and how the past might inform the future. So somehow I ended up with a 1958 three-group Faima Urania lever machine that opened Blue Bottle Williamsburg oh. in 2010. Is there wood involved in that machine? No, 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 no. Oh, it's, it's like from the, the, the peak, you know, mid-century Italian design. It's, it's a beautiful machine, blue glass, and, and it's finicky. It's finicky. Mm. Uh, but I have that in a little barn on my ranch, and I'll make espresso there that's very textured. It's all about texture. Usually there's Robusta in the blend that I'm making. Wow. And What percentage? Uh, 7 to 12. Wow. Usually. Uh, and it's all about texture. It's buttery. It's thick. It's, you know, 24 grams in, 18 grams out. It's, it's a very retrograde, transgressive espresso in terms of the modern standards. But I like, you know, I'll spend 30 seconds drinking it and an hour tasting it. Ugh. And speaking of Robusto, I had a Win Coffee Supply 100% Robusto recently. Oh, yes. It was cool. It's great. I, she sent me an anaerobic Robusta that I thought was – I made it actually a little bit on that machine, that old fine. Yeah. Um, I think she's doing incredible work. I mean there are very few people that I think you can call coffee innovators. Yeah. But I think mm -hmm. Sarah is totally yeah, an Coffee innovator. Supply. Check yeah, it out. Yeah, I'm um, a big fan. Let me ask you about um, like getting coffee – into like the pop culture sphere. I think there's plenty of vanity projects you see. <laughs> uh, of course, with like the push button machines, you see that like uh, Nespresso uh -huh. always has like a John Hammer or one of those guys. He's so hunky though. Yeah, definitely. Or Clooney. I think it's Clooney actually. Mm, the yeah. Push buttons. This all leads up to Jimmy Butler, NBA star, mm. truly a coffee nerd. I've had him on the show. Oh, that's cool. And are you familiar with what he's doing at oh, Big Face? Only, yeah, I mean, you know, you have just picked the exact wrong guy to talk about popular culture sure. or sports. So I've only heard like a little bit. I've heard cool. he's, he's a very famous basketball player. Yeah. And I've heard he's really sincerely into making good coffee and drinking beautiful coffee. And buying good coffee yeah, and yeah. selling it, hopefully, at exactly. an equitable rate for the farmer, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, all of those things I'm in favor of. And and I do think that's it's sort of an interesting time where that coffee nerddom, you know, that otaku kind of used to be unattractive. And now this, this very <laughs> famous person is being pretty deep, a pretty deep nerd and, and bringing that to a lot of people. It, it's... You know, my, my hesitancy is like, oh, well, what is he selling? Like, what is actually being sold sure. in that cup? Yeah. You know, and I'm not saying that it's somehow bad or wrong to have a 16-ounce big milk drink, 
but but it's like how how are people experiencing that coffee that is in the bottom of that big big cup? I mean, he's he's selling cup of excellence coffees. He, awesome. He's definitely thinking about roasting. Um, I can't wait to have him back to talk more about it. A lot it. of people think about roasting. Uh, it's what do you mean by that? It's hard. You got to do it. I know. I mean, it's so crazy to think about roasting and, and mm. it's at the end of this massive chain from farm to middleman to get the hauling. I mean, mm. we could go through all the process, but then you got to got these green beans and you got to figure out something to do with it and you can really mess it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coffee occupies a very interesting place in society because many, many people make coffee every single day of their lives. And if you do something every single day of your life, you're apt to think you have this privileged insight into how it should be made or what it should taste like. That's the tendency. That's I mean, with tendency. anything, if you watch movies every day of your life, you have a tendency to have this point of view that's exactly. pretty firm. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so, like, when you go to have a, a rarefied dinner somewhere, it's like, well, that's not exactly how I make a lime souffle every day. You know, people just don't have that thought, but they become experts in their own minds and tend to think that coffee is is easier than it looks when actually coffee is much harder than it looks. Yeah, I think we've established that a bit in this conversation and other conversations. Let me ask you a couple broad questions. And yes. I, I, I just like to get a sense of when somebody comes to you and says they like their coffee strong, mm -hmm. what do you say to them? I say bravo. <laughs> I, you know, like, the, the, what are, are you talking about in a professional context, like when I was working in a cafe yeah. and somebody would do or that? Or when you're just talking to a general consumer who's, who's interested in coffee, but it's like, you know, I like what I like. I like, James, I like strong coffee. Yeah, I think in my time in hospitality and listening to people talk about coffee, and I've listened to a lot of people talk about coffee, I think getting into the particulars is interesting and sometimes important, but really looking into the emotion behind those words that they're saying. Because I could say like, okay, well, strength in coffee is generally measured by this metric called total dissolved solids, TDS. And I've got a little machine. I can measure the coffee you think is strong and then rah, 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 rah. <laughs> um, and that, you know, if somebody's nerdy enough, they might want to. And then we'll talk about NTU. Um, a measure of turbidity, nephelometric turbidity units, which is, I think, one of the most underutilized metrics in, in coffee. But anyway, getting to this emotion, when somebody says, I like my coffee strong, what is that emotion? Like, I'm, I'm afraid I might not get coffee I like. Mm. You know, is it fear? Is it like... It's not going to hit my sweet spot. Right, right. right. I'm I like, I just want to feel safe and loved, you know? And you can't hug them <laughs> in a cafe. Yeah, um, but you can you can say like, all right, like what was the last? When was the last time you had a coffee that that made you feel like it was strong enough? Like what was that like? How did that feel? Yeah, we you have know, such so emotional connection exactly. to co our coffee experiences. Why we often say I had the best coffee on the outer route in Italy. It was like the best coffee of my life. But ultimately. Right coffee maybe maybe it's good but oftentimes maybe not it was yeah, just the experience and, and that's the allure and the myth of hawaiian coffee right right you know you, you go on your honeymoon it's like i had the most amazing kona coffee and you know and what's the emotion behind that it's like i've never felt more loved that day yeah and as we know in the industry talking about coffee hawaiian coffee is you know it's fine i'm sure mm. it's beautiful on the big island coffee being made but it's not the top 
10 reasons. There are many, many instances of Hawaiian coffee not being particularly well-produced or delicious. There's there's a guy, Miguel Meza, he has a, a roastery called Paradise Roasters, and he's sourcing a lot of Hawaiian coffee, kau especially, cool. um, doing beautiful work, incredible I'm, I'm work. glad you shouted somebody yeah. out because I'll definitely look look to buy some yeah, other I'm coffee. I'm a big fan. Um, next question. What do you say to somebody when they come to you and say, James, I like Colombian coffee? <laughs> well, it's the richest kind. Why shouldn't you? <laughs> no, I like Colombian coffee too. I think it's it's that that same, like, well, what is the impulse right. to having that? Or is it somebody that's, like, not familiar with uh, the milieu of a specialty coffee cafe? And they, like, it's like a little test it's like, oh, is somebody going to make me feel okay mm-hmm. if I ask this? Or is it come, somebody kind of coming in with a swagger, like this is what somebody told me I should say, but there's a little bit of a fear yeah. behind that. That like record shop, you know, bartender kind of Ex- snobby exactly. vibe going on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so looking at the emotion behind an utterance I think is going to give one more insight into how to treat the utterance, how to respond mm-hmm. to the utterance. But as a matter of fact, there's what? Colombia is the second or third biggest producer of coffee worldwide. Yeah. I think Brazil is number one probably. Brazil has always been number one. Yeah. Viet- the, the only question in my mind is Vietnam number two now. Yeah. Uh, but Colombia has like Grana, Esperanza, you know, some of the most glorious, glorious producers in the world. And it's got a range of tastes. It's like saying, I like American food. Uh, well, yeah, or I know? like French wine. Like, yeah, exactly. Kind of, which is, I, I think, I'm kind of repeating something I've brought up on other shows, but it's just like when you think about terroir and region, you got to f- unpack a little bit more than country, right? Who? But, who? You've got to think of who great. is making this thing. Great. And that's really hard because, yeah. like, the baseball card element of coffee, like, who who are the cool guys and who are the not? Like, that's impossible. I mean, I don't personally have any idea how to f- keep track of all that stuff. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, I gave up years ago. <laughs> I mean, so that's the that's the challenge because we want to like be like, I love uh, this finca, uh, you know, what did you say? You had a finca that you, in, in Japan, you 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 had you named a coffee and, and like- I Oh, fr- Finca Debra. Yeah, yeah Debra. Yeah. So like, like Finca Debra, like I'd love to have Finca Debra. Like you mm. just named this thing and- but like, how do we get it? Who's roasting it? You know, Finca's a farm. Many people are roasting Finca Debra. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how, when was it roasted? And when? how was it being made? And you, you know, how? There, yeah, there are many, many, many ways to go wrong with an extraordinary coffee. Yeah, I mean, it's just why it's really complex to kind of figure out um, what does terroir actually mean outside of these general flavor profiles that we kind of connect with regions. Yeah, I think of terroir as just being a metaphor, like a way of thinking about a taste and in a very, very general way. But then you have to, like, who who are the people along this chain that started in Panama and, 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 like, ended up on a plane or ship and then to a roastery and then... You, you know, it's amazing. It's the who that the who. counts. A few more questions, James. It's yeah. been a real delight to have you in. Um, I'm delighted too. I'd love to get a sense of a few brands. We talked about um, Win Coffee Supply, but are mm. there any other brands that we should be looking for? Roasters, cafes, all. Mm. Who, who excites you right now? Oh, well, I just came out of La Cabra, the new cafe in Soho, which is very pretty. And I got a beautifully made, very limpid espresso uh Gesha, very soft, Mm -hmm. not like sometimes espressos of lightly roasted coffee can be a little bit like a punch in the mouth. Was it a Panama, you said? Um, 
all I saw was the varietal. Interesting. I, uh, I mean, no, they. I'm sure they were very clear. Yeah, I just <laughs> forgot. Yeah. In in the menu, I, I just escaped me. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, one of the reasons I like La Cabra, I just from the farmers market. There was this ethic in the farmers market. We we sell what we make, and the thing I admire, in addition to the coffee about La Cabra, is that they make their own croissants. Yeah. They make their own vinoiserie. They make these little cardamom knots that are calling out to me that you brought us that I so brought, yeah. so kindly if anyone's ever had the cardamom knots from Glacabra, james has just dropped a few for pat nine we're we're quite happy thank you <laughs> thank you good but I, I admire places that make what they sell like tandem in uh, maine yeah does does the same they're they're former oh my blue bottle colleagues they're so oh, cool so good i One, love their people. uh malted cold brew i've never had it it's so good yeah it's yeah, so yeah. good yeah so so i i when I was in my most creative phase with Blue Bottle. We were making what we saw. I, I was fortunate. My wife, Caitlin, was the pastry chef, and she was making incredible things, beautiful things, extraordinary things that went beautifully with coffee. And so I, I like working harder than you have to. What, yeah. what makes me a little bit sad is walking to a cafe where they seem to care about everything, but then that care, that hard work stops at the case and, and, and you know, you mean the pastry case? Yeah. 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 yeah it's yeah. definitely. What about like a multi roaster cafe? Because I, I think I'm hearing you appreciate an all in mentality, which mm. I also appreciate. I love mm. like places like Intelligentsia in Stumptown, um, East One in Brooklyn, beautiful coffees there that are yeah. doing everything. But I also enjoy a good multi roaster. Oh my gosh. That is such an interesting model. I talked to Akira about that because I love going. There's, yeah. there's some in LA yep. that I go to. And there's all these incredible coffees from all over the world, great roasters, amazing things. And I don't I don't know how they make a business out. I don't know how you can pay your bills with all that shipping and keeping the the stuff fresh. I'm I'm glad I don't have to do it. I love going there. I, I go to one um that you know regularly has like a coffee that's uh, mm. thirteen, fourteen, fifteen dollars. It's always beautifully brewed. Dayglow? Beaut- yeah, 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 yeah. Beautifully brewed, and I pre like I sit outside their little shop and I drink it and and like it, and I th- I just don't know how they do it. Yeah, I always wonder if like doing retail and doing multi roaster and how do they upstream the retail into the pr- program and how do they keep their inventory moving? Thank God, I think it's not Los my An- question to answer. I think Los Angeles and places in New York and other opening in Brooklyn, they certainly have the you know the cus- customers who will come in and drop. That's good. Real money. Yeah, it's yeah, good. I will. Um, what kind of advice would you give anyone young getting into specialty coffee right now? As a, like, profession? Or, yeah, or... like a profession. Like, could be at the barista level, it's their first job, or it could mm. be somebody who's rising and is a young roaster, um, works it. Because I know there's just a lot of professionals out there who listen um, and love coffee. Yeah. It's such a different time. I, when I was starting, like, the internet, was around and you could look things up on it, but it was before like, it was basically taking the joy out of these personal discoveries. And I thought coffee was like very personal. Everything was very personal to me. And then I could also make mistakes that didn't live forever and that were not visible by everybody in the world. You know, pre Instagram, pre Twitter, I could just make these mistakes at the farmer's market, apologize for them, make somebody another drink. And it wasn't like a scarlet letter. Um, on me. So it's a very different time in coffee. And if somebody wants to be 
a professional, it's very tempting to just like look on Instagram and think you've learned something about coffee, you know? So like I would say like delete Instagram and like apply for a passport and just go places, Mm -hmm. go places, drink things, and then work someplace. You know, don't work for a, a few shifts or a few weeks or a few months. If you if you've gone to Tim Vendelbo's cafe in Oslo, you know the first thing I noticed? The floor. Mm. It was immaculate. It was Terrazzo is a cool design. It, no, 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 no. It was clean. Just the cleanliness. It was of it. clean. Right, right. It was a roastery with not without a single coffee bean on the floor. And it takes a while to learn how to do that to learn how to sweep, to learn how to, to, to see the one bean on the terrazzo that's over in the corner and to pick that up. So that's a skill that, that you have to practice in the real world over many, many shifts, many, many hours. So that would be the advice is to, like, you know, I, I suppose it's Mr. Miyagi advice, wax on, wax, wax off. On, but, patience um, too. I mean, yeah. and, and certainly... It sounds like skipping steps can happen, but it's not the norm in coffee, and you just gotta gotta put put the time in. Right, right, and and to think about what you want, what you think is cool, what excites you. Just because somebody is doing it in Copenhagen doesn't mean it's the right thing for you to do. I agree. Well, I want to close by asking a question I've asked many in coffee: Jeff Watts, Nigel Price of Drip, Nicely Able, Jordan Michaelman, James Nicely. Hoffman, Ashley Rodriguez. I mention all of those folks because I really respect their opinion, and we've had them all on the show. And James, let me ask you: What should coffee cost per pound? A lot more than it does. I'm sure every single coffee professional would would have told you that. There's a great, like, four or five pages in Dave Eggers' book, The Monk of Mocha, great book, where yep. he talks about, he just lays it out, every hand that coffee touches before it gets to a consumer. And it's a lot of hands. So, you know, coffee is built on this very colonial, very exploitative model. And that model is still very, very deep and very, very present in the coffee. Cafe owners are sometimes complicit in that, like, free refills and treating coffee as a commodity, treating it as it, as, as if it were not precious mm-hmm. and touched by a hundred hands before it gets to a, a guest. So, yes, coffee should be more because people all along the, the chain ought mm-hmm. to be paid more. That's a great, great point to, to close on. Um, I always want to like probe and say, should it be like $60 a pound? Should it be $80 a pound? Should we drink less of it and treasure it? I mean, all of those things. Right. I'm hearing that because I, I think it's, we know it's not, people don't charge enough and people don't value it. That's just really the end of this conversation. Yeah. Value people value the pharmacological effect quite, quite, yeah. <laughs> extremely highly. But um, they don't translate to those effects like, gosh, this thing that just made me smarter and more energetic and more charming and and reduced my capacity for feeling depressed for a few hours. Maybe I should pay twice as much. Yeah, that's both legal and readily available. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So great point there. James, we asked all guests on taste if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time and you have no deadline or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world to create this book. I know you are a bibliophile. Mm -hmm. You've published with 10 Speed in the past. What would this book be? 
Yeah, I'm actually thinking of a book. If I had it with no deadline, then I wouldn't do it. So it, I've true. learned I need to operate with a deadline. So that's a hypothetical constraint. I'm going to have to add a deadline back in. So, yeah, I want to write a book. I'm sort of talking to people about writing a book using Blue Bottle, my experience with Blue Bottle Coffee as a metaphor for sort of this clash between creative businesses and and the where we are in late-stage capitalism and 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 you know and and this idea to paraphrase Mario Cuomo I think you know that that creative businesses like mine are often founded in poetry and scaled in prose and and that's hard that's a hard place you know if if you're wanting more poetry but but then the pressure is for a more prosaic sort of approach then that that can be difficult and sometimes um, shattering even. I think that a book on creativity and scaling creativity, but mm-hmm. also, of course, having some coffee detail in there. Oh, so much coffee detail. And and just that word, you know, is scale a noun or a verb? Ugh. Or when I started, scale was a noun. Yeah. And it was something you weighed shit with. Yeah. 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 yeah it's so interesting. And, and I hate that term, actually. It's, <laughs> it's just it's against, because me, as you know, media is not a scalable business. No. You got to do it one by one. Same with coffee. Yeah. I agree. James Freeman, thank you for joining Taste. Thank you very much for having me. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 